The following episode of the 9pm Edict is unique among podcasts because it contains two middle-aged white men talking shit. That's new. It contains strong language and quite a bit of personal information. Sunday, the 30th of September, 2018. Nick- okay, okay. So it's now Saturday, the 20th of October. 2018 and I've finally gotten around to editing this podcast. It's a different one. It turns things inside out because Nicholas Fryer, who you'll know from the Arch Window segments uh, on this podcast, uh, he and I had a long chat in Adelaide and he's asking the questions, or at least most of them. There's a lot up front about the media and my thoughts on that, but down the back, there's a whole bunch of far more personal stuff and you may find that even more interesting. Or not. It's up to you. It's an experiment. Let me know what you think. Nicholas Fryer joins me to find out facts like this. Ad-living on the subject of Tony Abbott for a living is, is a curious concept. To express opinions like this. It's clear why I will never be an internet influencer. I just simply don't have the tits for it. And to disturb you with information like this. The mass psychological manipulation of 14-year-olds. This is the 9pm arch window into the soul. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a very different kind of podcast this time. In the room with me is Nicholas Fry, who you'll know from the Arch Window segments on this podcast. And he has uh, kindly put together a list of topics uh, which we are going to discuss. Uh, so, first of all, welcome, Nicholas. Thank you very much, Still, How are you? I am fabulous as always. Thank you. I have a glass of uh, Sangiovese from some local winery or other. You're looking well. That's remarkable given... Last night, <laughs> it is Sunday lunchtime, folks, and that that was an achievement in and of itself. You you do have on your um your device there uh, a number of topics to talk about. Let's go. Well, uh, when you first said you were coming to Adelaide and we might have a chat, uh, I used a couple of train journeys to think about what we might talk about, uh, and I started off uh, thinking about questions of uh, of broader interest, national significance and the like, so I jotted a few of those down. Uh, but as I got on to, the, to thinking about what questions I might ask you, uh, the focus of the questions narrowed to the personal, so we'll, sit, we'll start at the top and see how far we go. Um, the big news of the week, at least the last time I was looking at a newspaper, which was about Wednesday or Thursday... So the last time I looked at a newspaper was <coughs> probably about 2008. Ah, this is true. I'm using the word newspaper in its broader sense to mean anything, any text which might refer to current events, um, was the shenanigans at the ABC. <laughs> Such as arrest warrants. Yes, yes. Well, of significance greater than uh, the immediate. Um, the, uh, the fun and games at the ABC has been, uh, was, was occupying the media attention earlier in the week, not least on the ABC, uh, with the removal of the... Uh, I forget. Managing director, Michelle Guthrie. Michelle Guthrie, I forget her exact title, and then the, resi- and then the resignation of the, of the chairman and the ructions of the board. I haven't heard, actually, in the last 48 hours if there have been any further departures. None that I know of, but then it is the uh, grand final long weekend, so, you know, you can't sack people while they're at the footy. That's true. Well, well, I don't know. It depends. Justin Milne is his name. Justin uh, Milne was the, the chairman, chairman yep. of the board. And, and he's uh, now he's gone. gone. He's gone. But all of that raised for me some questions about the uh, role of the of a national broadcaster and the role of public broadcasting. Uh, and uh, I thought about asking you some of those questions because you obviously had an involvement with the ABC over many years, once a well, long time ago as an employee. I was about to say, many, many years, but many years ago, between 1985 and 91. That was the last time you were on payroll, but you've also... You, you, you can be found popping up. When people ask me who you are, I say, wait until there's a data breach somewhere <laughs> and then turn on whatever late line is called these days and there's a, there's a fair chance you'll oh, find yeah, him pontificating let, in the corner. Yes, they let me on. live on national television, which is always fun. And, and yes, I did make a documentary for Radio National a couple of years back. Uh, the role of the uh, public broadcaster, I'm going to say, because a state broadcaster is a bit kind of... Russia, if you're listening, sort of thing. Pravda is a state newspaper, for example. And it really is to serve the people of the nation as a a trusted and reliable 
source, whether that's of news or of questionable comedy uh, or of gardening tips or whatever that strange thing on the television was with that woman dancing at the beach that we saw just before we came in. Um, and to do so free of to do so free of uh, pressures, including commercial pressures, political pressures, to be that neutral point. And it's seen very much by the people who invented it, and that all happened at the BBC back in the 1930s. Uh, that was part of having a good and healthy democracy. Uh, that sort of changed a bit, I think, um, in that we're, we're now seeing the ABC very much... Uh, as being pressured not to continue that role into the age of digital media. And uh, we have the commercial players saying, no, 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 the, uh, the ABC Charter is all about uh, broadcasting. So anything you do that's not broadcasting, you shouldn't be there and shouldn't be competing against us. Um, and also that the politicians are increasingly seeing the ABC as the enemy. Now, to be fair, the ABC has always been the enemy of the government in the sense that Good journalism requires uh, investigating the, or challenging the government's claims, shall we say, and occasionally pointing out where they're wrong, which is, which is quite often uh, most of the time. But it's, it's really changed in recent, in recent years, I think, because the, the criticism has just become a lot blunter, a lot more direct. The idea of uh, Communications Minister Mitch Fifield f sort of lodging formal complaints against specific news stories, I mean, that, that sort of thing was unheard of a couple of decades ago, and now it seems it's normal operating procedure. And we've now got the allegations that uh, uh, Justin Milne, the chairman, was, was actually suggesting, and this is yet to be verified, and I'm, I'm sure we'll find out in due course, uh, but he was actually suggesting to the managing director that certain journalists, in this case uh, Amaral Ricci, be sacked. Uh, and that's because uh, she had done a report on companies in Australia that essentially don't pay any tax, and one of those companies was MYOB, the accounting software firm, and the chairman of that company is Justin Milne. So uh, th you know, there's no conflict of interest in his, his sort of alleged words there. Uh, and stories are continuing to emerge. This is far from the first time that, that he's made programming decisions. Now, my perception, very much outside of the industry, is that these are novelties, that this is a, a genuinely new uh, line of attack or, or perhaps, better words, specificity of attack on the ABC. There have always been grumblings. Governments of both stripes have always complained about ABC reporting. Um, oh, absolutely. When I was a producer for what's now uh, Radio uh, ABC Adelaide, here in Adelaide, uh, you know, you would you would come off air at the end of a shift and uh, your phone would ring and a voice would say, what the fuck do you call that, you cunt? And, you're, oh, it's good morning, Minister. Um, <laughs> I hope you're having a nice one too. Um, that's part of the game. Um, but at the same time, you would get if you, you know, equal opportunity abuse from whatever side of politics happened to be in power at the time mm. because that that's the game and indeed everyone knew the game there's combative uh, interviews on air but then when the red light goes off it's all oh, well yeah good to see you shake your hands catch you later yeah you know everyone is playing a role in a in a performance yeah but yes what Justin Milne is alleged to have done is unprecedented is a strong word but certainly people are saying they can't think of a time when it's really happened to that extent before. Yeah. Uh, and we are in a period where, all right, politicians always tried to stack the, the ABC board with with mates when, when they are in power, and that's, again, part of the, the game of any public authority whether the government gets to appoint the board members. But currently we have uh, a board that is stacked... Stacked... It is business-heavy, shall we say. We've got lawyers and accountants there, and the only person uh, with any media experience whatsoever is a guy who used to be on the board of cha uh, Channel 7, and the only person with any personal broadcasting experience is the ABC's staff-elected representative. You know, and, and I mean, that's just communism right there, obviously. Yeah, it's very much this whole idea that the ABC is this vast left-wing conspiracy has only come about because... I suppose politics has moved generally to the right. 
Yeah, I mean, the American experience has always struck me as being illustrative uh, and, and educative here in Australia. When having no, essentially no national broadcaster, no public broadcaster in the United States, the uh, obviously the <coughs> national public radio works to an extent. And, and PBS. Yeah. But, but, but that is more akin to what we would call community broadcasting yeah. in Australia. And indeed, that was first called back in the 70s when it began it was called uh, public broadcasting yeah. because it was it was very deliberately modelled on the American style of of public radio there, uh, but then kind of ABC and SBS sort of said, "Well, hang on, we're we're the public broadcasters. We're publicly funded." Well, yeah, fair point. They yeah. said, and, and so community broadcasting became the the term. Yeah, and 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 all, all uh, other media outlets have obviously for a long time had a uh, an opinion about the ABC and how it does because uh, they will see it uh, perhaps quite naturally as a as a taxpayer subsidized competitor in an otherwise uh, in an industry in which they're fighting to form their own you know to make their own way um, and there's an argument for that i mean does does the ABC really need to do i don't know gardening programs or quiz shows or whatever um, gardening, you could argue that because the ABC had a, a focus outside of the capital cities, that that maybe a more uh, widespread knowledge of that was appropriate, and and one that's not um, predicated on flogging insecticides and seed packets and whatever. Um, okay, as I say, that there's a reason why you might want a non-commercial variant of that, but. Game shows, um, what's called companionship radio, which is the long talk shifts uh, that certainly I used to produce back in the days, you know, three hours from 7pm to 10pm. Um, it's, it's information as entertainment. It's not intended to be news. Uh, it's intended to be topical. Um, but really it is just to have the radio on in the background while you're, you know, making dinner or feeding the kids or, or um, painting the spare bedroom or whatever it is that you do in the evening. Mm. And while other media outlets, as I say, have always had an opinion, one thing that struck me most dramatically in recent years has been the apparent level of vitriol and directed at the ABC, particularly from the Murdoch press, which has always seemed to me to be, which has seemed to me in recent years to be pretty close to, you know, a raison d'etre for some of the publications. The ABC is one of the handful of targets which who are to be taken down. Oh yeah. And that's well. That's the function of the national broadsheet newspaper, isn't it? It's it's really become a a power projection device. I mean, it, it loses money, although every now and then they claim that they've made a profit this quarter or that quarter. Yeah. But its function is to set the national debate, and that's why it's given out free at airports for every flight going into Canberra, and. <laughs> <laughs> it's why it arrives at radio stations. And yes, even the ABC will set its morning talk show agenda by what sort of things are in the newspaper. Yes. And so it works. Yeah. Clearly, it absolutely works. Clearly it does. And it, and it works in, in lockstep and increasing lockstep with the conservative side of government, of politics. Oh, yes, absolutely. And it's reached the point where I stopped mostly stopped reading The Australian. I mean, I dive in to read specific things. But I stopped at the point when the the structure of it blurred that, you know, you expect opinion in a newspaper, it's on the opinion pages, and you expect news on the news pages. But the opinion uh, and partisan, quote, analysis, unquote, started going up to the front end of the paper. And uh, I stopped when one particular day I was reading an analysis of the news poll that had came out the night before and it was factually incorrect like the numbers were there on a chart way down the bottom somewhere but the interpretation was so clearly partisan and so clearly spinning the numbers that I thought well I can see that that's wrong what are the other things that I can't see that are also wrong because I don't have the raw data or the inside knowledge of that topic? I could no longer trust the journalists at the front of the paper to give me the facts. And I'm perfectly happy to have the opinion in the back of the paper. You know, a good, a well-written analysis or opinion piece is a good thing. And I mean, I kind of make my living doing that by and large these days. But it has clearly ceased to be any sort of honest broker of information. That's right. And that's the sense I got, which is why I stopped reading it like you did 10 or 15 years ago. Mm. Yeah. Uh, which, which is sad because there are some actually really good journalists there. Undoubtedly. And, and there is really good journalism in the pages. Um, 
and its, its analysis of international affairs in the Asia-Pacific region is, is probably some of the best around uh, outside of a think tank. It's fascinating that, all right, you know, the tabloids are, of course, about stirring up opinion. And, and in fact, um, uh, David Pemberton, I mean, David Penberthy, uh, who's, again, from Adelaide and he's back on radio in, in Adelaide now, but uh, he was the editor of the City Daily Telegraph for a while. And he plays the role of tabloid newspaper editor exceptionally well. And I, I know him personally from years ago, and I know that he is adopting the role of tabloid editor. He's... He's certainly no right-wing reactionary, but that's the impression that he wanted to give the paper. He's he's actually kind of got quite a bit of a social conscience and but but yes, he would commission stories that he knew would stir up the punters, and then when Media Watch called him out on television, he'd send an email that was the the rantings of a tabloid newspaper editor and telling them they're all out of touch in a city elites. And it, it's fabulous. He did it very well. And one can understand that, though, in the context of a, a tabloid who presumably yes. are still trying to shift units. They are actually trying to sell advertising space and trying to sell numbers of newspapers oh, yeah, to yeah, people yeah, 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 in, yeah, yeah, yeah. in cities to read a- on trains. Absolutely. And they're aiming at uh, the tradie and commuter market. And, yes, it's like, Brian, did you see this? That's that's what you're looking for. Yeah, but whereas the Australian presumably has an entirely different market or target, uh, and and selling numbers of papers clearly isn't the target because no. they they don't. They're they're aiming at influence, as yeah. I say. The, the 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 point I'm perhaps most interested in exploring, or, or the point that exercises me so much, is that uh, you mean you made the distinction earlier about the difference between public broadcaster and a state and state media. Mm. With the Australian and with the Murdoch Press more generally, but particularly with the National Broadsheet marching in such lockstep with one side of politics, at yes, least yes, while that the, side the, of politics the is the in people's, pa- the People's Republic of of Holt Street. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I refer to my. Amongst my friends, I refer to the, the federal government as the, as the, the or the coalition parties as the the political wing of News Corp. Mm. Um, uh, it seems to me that we must have a state media here now, at least when that side of, of, of politics is in power. We have a state media in the form of the Murdoch outlets, which can be relied upon to push a particular political political line, which can be relied upon not to ask questions about um, uh, questions of political moment. And which can be relied upon to to ridicule, for example, um, suggestions of of royal commissions into banks or other issues that might be exercising people more generally, and which to which the the coalition parties are resistant. Yeah, very much so. Uh, you see, uh, both the tabloids and uh, the, the the broadsheet uh, giving the government viewpoint on things uh, very uncritically. Uh, you see it getting the, the the drops and the the, the under embargo here. Here's a document which will be released tomorrow, uh, and that's particularly uh, obvious on a weekend. And and Monday morning starts with whatever the government program is having been pre-spun, and they're on the front page of the Australian, and that then becomes the frame through which that story is interpreted. Remarkable, given that nobody reads the newspaper. <laughs> Except all of the journalists and producers who yeah. then go on and to the make the morning TV and radio shows, and the politicians. Oh yes, you can you can certainly see sometimes stories on the front page of the Australian who have an intended audience of fifty people. Yeah, it's funny. I was uh, again like you. I, I tend to see the Australian only in airports, and only ever pick it up so that I can do the Times crossword on aeroplanes. Um, and I saw a piece. You by, are getting old very oh, quickly, aren't very you? Much. Um, uh, and I saw a piece by Chris Kenny in which the the headline in relation to, in relation to the ABC described it as the out of control broadcaster, <laughs> which um, I mean if the first thought that occurs is precisely under whose control it should be. Well, Murdoch's obviously clearly yes, or, or the governments. But it does paint that picture that we get from the the press about from from the Murdoch press and from others about the ABC being this monolithic block of of lefties. Um, now you've known <laughs> you've known ABC employees. For much of your adult life, you've yeah. been one. Yeah. Um, how realistic is that stereotype? How, how it's, it's bullshit. It's almost impossible to find out what's happening on an, on another program on your same station, let alone what's happening elsewhere in the building. <laughs> there really isn't that level of functional communication in the place, and never has been. Um, all journalists, by I take that back. 
all political journalists and, and financial journalists and so on, I think by their very nature, have to be a little bit left of centre because they are questioning the status quo. Yeah. That's the whole difference between progressive and, and conservative, kind of. You know? That'll do. <laughs> yeah. First approximation. Yeah. Um, so that, that comes with the territory. Um, it doesn't apply to all journalists. I, I imagine that the political leanings of a, uh, of a car journalist or a sports journalist or anything like really, really doesn't enter into the equation. Uh, certainly uh, many sports journalists, shall we say, are of a uh, certain conservative social and, and, and economic worldview. Uh, it's you know, a very blokey job, and although I understand that, that women are allowed to, to report on sports these days occasionally. Two presenters that I've produced for, certainly, I would not call left-wing. Mm. Um, I, I won't name names, but, but one of them was certainly older and conservative, and, and there was no way I could, could sort of lever him out of a uh, comfortable, uh, leafy eastern suburb in Adelaide to, to perhaps maybe broadcast from somewhere else from a cha- for a change. Uh, and and uh, another one was uh, certainly driven by money. Hmm. Um, and that was how he viewed it. But he's a good broadcaster. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we we used to get equal complaints, as I say, from both sides of politics back then. I don't think that necessarily means you're doing your job well if both sides are complaining. It may be that you're do, doing your job appallingly but, <laughs> and but in, everyone's complaining. But impartially. <laughs> but impartially, yes, yes. Equal opportunity and competence. Yeah. We've been talking a while, so I should say that, uh, hello, I'm Stilgarian and welcome to The Edict. Before we continue our conversation, I want to show in something uh, quite wonderful. One of the Halloween costumes available this year in the United States is an internet influencer costume, which and, and the photo sh- photograph shows a shapely young woman wearing a halter top and uh, what are those things called? Leggings. Yes. Uh, and and her baseballish cap. So the, the horror that is an internet influencer. Well, that, it's clear why I will never be an internet influencer. I just simply don't have the tits for it. Uh, yeah, as you get older, that well, that, that, fix that, itself. that might yeah. fix itself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> certainly has for me. Uh, the yes, well, these are these are the people who somehow uh, have a million people watching their YouTube channel every week uh, because they they really just relate quite ordinary details in their lives. I I just realised where I, that I could hardly in a position to pass judgment here, am I? Let's all stare out the window for a moment and whistle nonchalantly. Yes, it's 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 a fascinating um, phenomenon of the modern world. The uh, the reinvention of almost everybody and everything as a media star uh, or a, a media personality. Um, uh, I, I, and I have no sense at all. This is this is starting to sound like an old man. I have no sense at all whether a media influence or, or internet thought leader uh, actually makes any money doing any of that. Oh, they certainly do. If you've got an audience of a million people. Will a million do it? Is it oh, a million? Is it, fifty thousand would do it. Fifty thousand. Fifty thousand on your YouTube channel will be enough, will it? Can you? Re- can well, you, can well, you, the, the can, you feed, of, can you feed a family of four on that? Well, no, um, because you can't feed a family on influence, um, but you can feed them on on free food from these. No, the it, the law of supply and demand hits here. So the the magic thing in advertise, uh, advertising is the CPM, the cost per thousand. Uh, which is the price you pay for an ad to reach each thousand people. The CPM rate has plummeted as the supply of potential places to advertise has increased. Uh, And also because when things are on the internet, you can actually measure how much people click through Mm. and it revealed to the world that all that advertising, maybe no one actually sees it. And you can certainly see that in the age of the Saturday newspaper or, or even weekday ones where People would get on the train uh, with their newspaper in the morning having just discarded all of the advertising supplements in the bin and the railway station bins were overflowing with the back end of the newspaper because mm. no one wanted the ads. I mean, why would you want a 20-page car ad supplement if you're not that month wanting to buy a car? Mm. 
uh, but you used to pay to reach all of those people. And now... As against that, you are reaching the people who are looking for a car that month, so those people are retaining and looking through that section of the paper. Yes. So it kind of worked, but now you know who that is. Mm. You know who's clicking through on the ads, and you pay for advertising, usually on a click-through basis. So you pay for a click-through. If you just show the ad to someone... uh, that doesn't cost you any money. Uh, and someone like Google has a sophisticated algorithm so that it's trying as much as it can to show the ads to people who are more likely to click through maximising their revenue. I mean, again, why wouldn't you and why would you waste people's time? That's that's actually a good thing to do. But uh, you a click-through is like your base rate for a click-through for a random Google AdWords ad was five cents at the minimum bid. You, you bid... Or, and you say what your maximum price is and how much you want to spend and it maximises uh, the number of showings of your ad that are likely to click through uh, given that you want to spend $100 a day or you've put a $2,000 budget and you don't mind it all burning off in the first day or whatever you want to do. Uh, but funnily enough, news sites pay for you to click through to their version of a news story rather than one of their competitors because they have advertising on that page. And in a breaking story, uh, they might be willing to pay $2.50, $3 for a Mm click-through, which they see as an investment in the future. Uh, You know, they're certainly not going to get that money per click-through from their ad out, but then it all feeds into the surveillance economy and... Yeah. It's all monitored and whatever. Where was I going with that? I'm not sure. I was trying to work out if I can make a living, if I can quit my job and, 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 and put, oh, yeah. put, on a pair um, of, put on a pair of leggings and make a living unboxing telephones. Yeah, click on my um, Patreon page. Yeah, you can do it. Yeah. Um, I mean, but the numbers are up there. Um, you know, you, you <laughs> Will I be better off serving coffee? <laughs> it's certainly easier to get into. Hmm. Uh, you know, you might need to grow your hair long and get a top knot and... I am prepared to make these sacrifices. <laughs> um, the numbers... I, I'm going to go beep and insert here the number of uh, subscribers to your YouTube channel you have to have before YouTube will put ads on it that you get a share of. Actually, it's not as big a number as it used to be. To join the YouTube Partner Program, your channel has to have clocked up 4,000 watch hours in the previous 12 months and 1,000 subscribers. And then you can apply to be reviewed to see whether you can get in there. So maybe it's uh, better than it used to be. And as you heard, which you didn't, but you will later, that's quite a large number. (laughs) Indeed. I was struck this week by the story, I I was on the BBC website, and as so often happens now that I'm old and don't care anymore, uh, I was uh, tempted and and teased through to clicking through to a story which was all about the the background story for the latest thing which had apparently taken over all of our lives and was ubiquitous and everywhere, and this was the story of this particular thing. And I clicked through, as I so often do, because I'd never heard of this thing which had apparently... Uh, now occupied as a meme the brains of approximately a third of the planet and it was a song called Baby Shark and uh, we learnt a bit about how in fact the song itself wasn't new what struck me was the, the story that I, they, I have never heard of this you've never heard of Baby Shark what a, well, a billion and a half views on YouTube I'm told and uh, this is the Gangnam style. The Gangnam style for this is the the Gangnam style for four year olds. It's a song for toddlers. It's a nursery rhyme song. It's an, it's one that they've got video footage of people singing it at, at uh, sort of scout camps back twenty should, twenty should, years should ago. Should we have a listen? Uh, certainly, drop it in. Baby, baby shark. shark. I notice. I notice when I start typing in baby, it, it then tells me that it will autocomplete to babies on fire. The and Brian Eno song, which is. Okay, I can see Baby yeah. Shark do 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 one hour. That'll, that, that's, certainly, Baby Shark do 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 is is what we're talking Baby about. Baby Shark the one original hour's a bit of a threat. Okay, here we go. There we go. This is, this is essentially Gangnam Style by the Wiggles. If the Wiggles were Korean. Shut it. 
and yeah, it is. And you now more or less have the idea. As do many people, apparently. Yes, fortunately. Wow. It's now that apparently that's really good. Uh, I know I noticed that the, uh, the the video we've just watched that has a mere two million views, but I saw one uh, which has better better than a billion and a half. Yeah. And th- thus it is the the internet phenomenon. And what I noticed about the uh, new- there, there we go, baby shark dance, sing and dance, animal songs, pink fong songs for children, one point seven billion views. Though it's two years old. Two years old is it? Right. Mm. Okay, well that explains well, why. Two two rounded to the nearest integer years old. Yeah, and one point seven billion views. Well, at some point in the relatively recent uh, past, it has obviously exploded to that level of interest, and that is why the BBC is now writing news stories about how it's everywhere. And it has uh, the, the thing. The thing that amused me most about the the reporting on it was in that time, uh, it has generated now not only a live show which travels the world, awesome, uh, but a musical I, as well. I now want to go. There is a musical, and of course there is a film in the works. I'm very sad to uh, have missed the the Australian, the most recent Australian. Co- oh, no, maybe it's coming up. I think it's still coming up of the Korean boy band BTS. Uh, which packs out stadiums around the world. And uh, while I'm not a big fan of the, the boy band genre, and certainly not necessarily uh, the Korean, K- you know, as in K-pop boy band, what I will say um, is that I, I would like to see what sort of audience is there and how it all works, because I love watching how a show is put together. And in fact, I find going to uh, music concerts generally quite boring because I've got nothing to do except listen to the music. Uh, and having instead, you know, being a producer of outside broadcasts and concerts and live things, I'm used to having lots of things to do, um, like basically running the show. Uh, and so, I, as I say, I find just standing there watching it really remarkably boring because I say there's nothing to do. So I always try and skulk about and try and get backstage or whatever to... Again, just see how they've put this together and learn something from it. And how they put it together in, in the case of a K-pop band. Uh, yeah. Presumably you'd be yeah, talking yeah. about a, the, the mass psychological manipulation of 14-year-olds. Well, yes. I went with the Snarky Platypus to a Veronica's concert once at the Enmore Theatre. And my God, I mean, the amount of 14-year-old girl hormones, whatever, pheromones in the air, it was really quite scary. Yeah, it would be. Um, but... They're also a great band. I mean, their their performance is brilliant and the music's good. Um, so again, I, I just want to see how the show's put together. Yes, well, we can we can wait for the movie of this one. Uh, yeah, this is the edict. Uh, we'll be back shortly. Ladies and gentlemen, this podcast is made possible through your contributions, both your subscriptions and one-off amounts. Uh, This podcast in particular has been part of the 9pm Flying Visits uh, possible campaign, and uh, a number of podcasts will come out of this, so uh, I'll thank people as we go along. Uh, What I will uh, do this time is thank 
the people who made a slightly less basic tip, and if I remember correctly, they're Citizens for Media Freedom, I think is the ranking these people have. So it's a big thank you to Liz Darville, Garth Kidd, Kimberly Heitman, Matthew McBride, Tim Hamilton, Adam Fitzpatrick, Peter McCrudden, Ridwin, Michael Rowe, John Lindsay, Ben Moretti, David Heath, Peter Blakely, AJ Hocking, Tim Bell, K.O. Hall, that's Carl Oscar Hall, uh, Michael Keating and Daniel O'Connor. Thank you very very much. More people will be uh, thanked in the next couple of episodes. Uh, and in those episodes, we'll also uh, have some of the trigger words and uh, conversation topics that uh, people are in the process of sending in. Uh, if you would like to contribute now, go to stillgarian.com slash tip. That's stillgarian.com slash tip. Empty your wallets there. Uh, it's, it's all totally safe. It's on the internet, so nothing can go wrong. Nicholas Fryer is with me. Hello again. Hello, still. I don't. I don't know why we do that because I mean, it's not like people are just tuning in into the middle of a podcast, and you know, that's an old radio thing. Is that you're going to keep reminding people uh, who who it is they're listening to? Um, we have one trigger word in already. Jono uh, Ferguson, thank you. Just thrown in a wonderful one. Bipolar. I think it's aimed more at me. Yes, well, I'm, I'm not going to touch it. My, my um, free association response to the word bipolar is to start thinking about the Arctic and the Antarctic, so I'll, I'll, I might leave that one I'm to not, you. No, 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 go, go. Um, Tell us more. Uh, well, they're, they're, That's both, they're both fairly cold places, and I've never been to either. Uh, wow. And I don't suppose now I'll ever get to walk on one of them, so no. I'd have to visit it by ship. Submarine. Yes. Or Russian nuclear icebreaker. As soon as you can rustle either of those up, let me know. This has been triggered because, of course, uh, uh, that's something that I have been diagnosed with a couple of years back, which is type 2 bipolar, which is... People may not know about this, and that's why I will say a few words. Uh, People associate the word bipolar with what used to be called manic depression, uh, and that's type 1 bipolar. And you can can tell when people have got that because, boy, when they're in a mania, they're up for, like, uh, that lasts, like, a couple of weeks, maybe longer, and during that time they either think they're Jesus or they, they start a company or decide to travel the world and spend vast amounts of money or whatever. It clearly um, in an out-of-control portion of their life, and uh, then they come crashing down into the depression phase, and again, they, they last a number of weeks. Type 2 bipolar is a relatively recent invention or recent discovery, I should say, and it's far less intense. It is normally misdiagnosed as major depression because nearly all the time uh, you're in a depressive state and just occasionally, every now and then, pop up into what they call a hypomania, a little bit of mania, nothing way up like type 1 bipolar, but just a little bit perhaps overly perky, uh, perhaps a bit overly ambitious in what you try and do, um, whatever, and those periods last less than two days and the Black Dog Institute in Sydney, one of the world's leading uh, mood disorder uh, medical research institutes, they believe that sometimes they only last a matter of hours. Um, Would be a pity to sleep through it. <laughs> I, I think the point is you don't sleep through it. Mm. <laughs> that's that's uh, f- sort of part of the equation. But it turns out when they uh, do a, a deeper diagnosis with people, who generally they get referred uh, people to them uh, at Black Dog. People who have been diagnosed with major depression uh, or some other uh, non-depressive uh, illness, uh, medical condition, I should say, not illness. Um, but treatment has never really been successful. And when they do, they find that at least 40% of the people they re-diagnose as type 2 bipolar. And then the uh, management programs work because this stopped me if you've heard this before about medicine but apparently if you you do the management program for the condition a person actually has rather than a completely different one it works better good to know good to know so like uh, like like it's bipolar one friend all, all these are quite manageable if if you actually know that, that that's the condition and and are on a management program but it is it is interesting so i i recommend anyone um who has had trouble getting a major depressive disorder um treated or managed properly have a have a quiet yarn to your medico about whether it might be type 2 bipolar and he'll say, stop listening to random idiots on the internet diagnosing your illnesses. But I might also have a chat about it. It's worth doing. There you go. 
As I say, we're still, we've strayed on to um, some rather more personal territory. Perhaps that's an opportunity for me to... Perhaps I should take that as my cue to segue into some of the questions that I set aside later on in the week as I was thinking about the things we might talk about, which, mm. uh, frankly, are some of the questions which, uh, about which I'm more interested uh, than the ones than the uh, p- grander political questions. I will foreshadow this by saying that, that some years ago, Nicholas and I did share a house Together. Yes. Well, part uh, of this, of course, and, is generated. We've been friends for a very long time. We've been friends for thirty years. So, yes, I do know. <laughs> I have known you a fair amount of time. Um, the, the first question that occurred to me to ask, and I wondered if you've ever really sort of closely addressed this on in any of your podcasts, is why do you do this? The podcast, or, yeah. or just life in general? Why I mean, you... life in general? Because I mean, it's just there, isn't it? Yes, you indeed. Know, it indeed. beats the alternatives. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that you think so. Um, yes. <clears throat> but no, no. In terms of your podcasting, you, you, you. you have spent much of your life in media and communications. Mm. What has driven that interest and what is it that continues to drive it in this format? I've kind of committed to it now and I'm, I'm too embarrassed <laughs> to stop because people give me money to do it. Um, and I know that feeds into another question later. No, I, I enjoy it um, and I think <laughs> people may disagree, but I think I'm better and have more fun doing broadcast style stuff uh, and and this stuff uh, rather than writing written words and I will fret forever over written words and look I know so many writers will agree with this the important part of writing efficiently is to wander around the house doing completely different things until 90% of your allotted time is gone um, procrastinating and then somehow it happens at the end I mean writing is a terrible thing to do for a living I don't know why anyone does it there but here I am doing it whereas uh, if I'm doing a broadcast style thing it, it flows naturally it just happens you know stick me in front of a microphone or a camera and I will deliver the the desired outcome or perhaps not the desired outcome but something that will still amuse the audience and I it doesn't feel like work so I enjoy this. Uh, it is an outlet for creativity that I feel less stressed about, except now that, you know, once you have a commitment, oh, God, I really should do a new podcast. I was thinking, oh, fuck, they're going to hate me. They hate me. They hate me. Um, yeah. Does that answer the question? Yeah, it goes some Does it trigger way. further questions? Yes, it does. Um, I, I wonder how often, and uh, to the extent to, to which you reflect upon the absurdity of, of, what you, of what you do, the absurdity of, for example, this podcast, um, the, the absurdity of the episode where I recorded myself having a piss in the morning. That. Uh, the absurdity. Well, the, the freedom that obviously the format brings. Um, uh, yeah, I, I'm playing. Look, I'm, I'm playing with the you know, ideas in some of the formats. And perhaps I'll, you know, I settled down to more traditional things. Like you know, a couple of episodes ago, I had a long chat with uh, John Birmingham, the, who is again a writer. <laughs> we have a certain thing. He writes books and shit, you know, yes. those long things. He's a complete masochist. Um, but he's very good at it. Um, why do I keep going? Um, I don't know. It's, it's just part of my life. I don't know. I'm too stupid to stop. How's that? That's a good answer. And it's one that probably fits most of us in, in some sense of, uh, once you reach a certain point in any sort of career. But I was struck by the question that particularly occurred to me when I was listening to the most recent podcast. Yes. One of my earliest memories, in fact, from, from after we moved to Australia was of uh, I spent most of my childhood in a fairly small country town, uh, was of watching uh, some children, some fairly cruel children, taunting an, an elderly uh, and possibly intellectually disabled man by uh, requiring him to dance and perform other uh, unlikely and undignified acts. Good to hear you say that because I've now been living in the eastern states where they say dance, right? I, which I have trouble even saying. There's a dance. Yes, that's a correct word. <laughs> in exchange for small sums of cash, which were tossed to him to, to you know, as part of their, the price of their entertainment. And then last week I listened to you eat an avocado pie. Oh, that was uh, disgusting. In, that, in, was, that was awful. <laughs> largely because someone on the internet had given you a small sum bucks. of money to go do it. <laughs> <laughs> and the parallels between the two situations were were amusing, and I wondered if it, if, if if the absurdity of that ever. I mean, do you ever find yourself mid bite and thinking, "What am I doing? Oh, and it, why it, would anyone uh, listen to this?" Not just mid bite, everything, <laughs> all constantly. What what am I doing? Um, even though I, I used to actually script out way back when I started the podcast, I used to script it out in in quite 
some detail. I mean, not the exact words, but certainly there were there were phrases and sound bites and bullet points or whatever. But I I've I found it um, that. I would just drift off that into other conversational topics and follow a, a, a sort of stream of consciousness thought process going down some very strange rabbit holes indeed. And yes, usually about a minute into that, it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? What, Where are you going with this? This is insane. But then I did that with a video thing. We'd call it a vlog now, maybe a video podcast some years before that, Still Gary and Live, which was just... I would sit down in front of the webcam and go live for an hour. And I might have a couple of little videos of things I'd found on the internet to drop in and talk about or a grab from the news or whatever. But when I started each episode, I, I had one sheet of paper with, with, say, five or six bullet points on it. And they would be things like uh, library books, um, you know, the, the, a beer I had the other day, uh, Tony Abbott. I'd just say that, not what I was going to say, just Tony Abbott. And it was almost entirely ad lib. Um, yeah, see, now I'm also, this, this is another of those moments. You said, do you ever feel, why, why are you doing, doing Why this? am I doing And this? why would anyone listen to me yeah, even that, answering this question? Yeah, that's, that's, that <laughs> just happened right then. Ad-libbing ad on the subject of Tony Abbott for a living is, is a curious concept. Have you watched Sky News? No. No, I, I pass it on in the in the uh, railway station, uh, but it's, the sound is always off, and I'm certain. Oh, you're lucky I'm because in, it's in better Sydney, for the it. sound is on. Yeah, and I, I've never been able to hear them. Thank Christ. Oh no, it's it's quite awful. Yeah, and and again with about thirty thousand viewers, as I understand it. So that's right. Once again, no one's watching. That's right. Emma Alberici has more Twitter followers than <laughs> Sky News at Night has actual audience. Look, again, it's about influence. That's, that's really become, I don't know, more a group therapy session. And I, I'm very impressed with uh, uh, Malcolm Turnbull's son. What's his name? Alex, I want to say. Alex Turnbull, Adam. Maybe. Not sure. Okay, his I, son. I saw anyway, the yes. intervention a few weeks ago that I can't remember his name either. No, um, but, but now that his father is no longer Prime Minister of Australia, he's feeling a little more at ease talking about his political views. Yeah. And, and look, it's fair. It's like most sons. It doesn't always line up with his father. But uh, he was invited. Uh, Sky, Sky News got in touch with him and said, would he like to come on to the, I forget which of the evening shows, but they're all basically the same. And he said, no, thank you very much. Uh, uh, bitter old men can go off their meds without me, I'm sure. Mm. Um, and that's really what it is. It's, it's, it's a group blog. <laughs> yeah. Come to think of it, one would have a difficult time discerning precisely what Malcolm Turnbull's political views are. I mean, I, I'd, um, I'd find it hard to articulate. He, he spent he certainly three finds years it hard, yeah. not articulating them <laughs> yeah. at all. Was it three years? It feels much shorter. I mean, just probably because very little was accomplished. There was, a whole, there was a whole election in there. Yeah. But but almost managed to lose. Yeah. So, the, so it must have been at least two or three years. Yeah. But, yeah, uh, as you say, a, a vacuum. <sighs> vacuum in the suit as the prime minister. No, it's 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 uh, it's an odd way of spending your time, and I, I often wondered uh, how often that thought struck you. One of the things that, of course, happens with age is that you get an increasing number of rabbit holes to to dive down. Um, yes, and uh, I know often that in your own underpants. <laughs> <laughs> you can d you dive down your own underpants as often as you like, mate. As long as you, as long as the cameras aren't rolling. Uh, Au contraire. <laughs> is, that, is that how one builds influence? <laughs> look, yeah. Look, I, I have. You know, why did I eat that pie? Because someone gave me twenty bucks. Like I, I tweeted that they have a thing called a chicken and avocado pie, and and. People said, "What does it taste like?" And, and I said, "I didn't, I didn't buy one." And then they said, well, "Well, I'll buy one for you, and you can tell me what it tastes like." But <laughs> I mean, it must have been a loss-making proposition. You had to go there twice because they'd sold out the first day, and I assume the bus fare there and back had ate up much of that twenty bucks. The pie itself cost something like three hundred dollars. Yeah, from, from, it was seven dollars thirty. It was, it was a genuinely range. country boy in Sydney moment when you said when they behind the counter without an, a moment's embarrassment, said something like, that'll be $7.50 for a pie. And I just well, thought, I had an avocado. Oh, right? my God. Half an avocado <laughs> that hadn't been peeled. So, so on the whole... Did have bacon what and cheese on it. <laughs> what happened was you probably just had a slightly expensive lunch. 
I, I, I didn't manage to get all the way through it. I will. <laughs> so you had to go and have lunch afterwards? Well, obviously. <laughs> I needed to get the taste of the thing out of my... Actually, I went... No, it was too early for lunch. It was only nine in the morning, so I went to a pub and drank bourbon. <laughs> yeah, this is a loss-making exercise. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I see. One of the most uh, interesting... I will, I will say, however, that... that my generous supporters did pay for the hotel in which we're sitting recording this. Well done, you. One of the, the interesting things that uh, on your website, fascinating to me um, as, as someone who's known you for a long time and uh, uh, shaping up to be fascinating for anyone who grew up in, particularly in South Australia in that particular era, was a series of blog posts you did as your 50th birthday approached which uh, you didn't complete. You, you got through about... You planned to do 50 of them, and you got through about nine, I think, from memory. Yes, nine. And Actually, nine, nine and a half. Nine and a half. Because the ninth one uh, was about the space age, and, and I split it into two. One was about the space age as, as we are told about it, like moon landings and all of that sort of mythology. And then the, the second part was the proper space age, which was about plastic toys in cereal boxes it's and, a big and, topic yes, yeah to be approached in, in pieces I, I gather you didn't finish the the series and no. I gather one of the reasons was that it raised some fairly interesting emotional resonances for you look it, it is and uh, this may um come i'm not, i'm just pausing not because i don't want to talk about it but pausing because i'm trying to find the, the right way into the subject as you said we did nine and i was you know it was it was one per year not necessarily about things that happened that year but but thoughts triggered by something about that year uh, and, and then go on. So we're up to then when I'm 10, and that's when my father died. And obviously anyone's father dying is a bit of a change, uh, but it meant that that piece really had to be about my father's role in my life and not to find a point on it. He was a cunt. And um, I believe physically abusive. Now, I, I have, I'm very good at suppressing memories of things, and I know that I've probably suppressed, suppressed stuff there, uh, but I'm fairly sure there was an incident uh, when there was something which was betrayed as an accident and I needed to go to hospital. And upon reflection decades later, I'm, I'm more of the opinion that it was not an accident. And I've, I've chosen not to explore that very much. A psychologist offered once, said, do you want to explore that? I said, a long time ago, I said, all right, fair enough. If you change your mind, let me know. I said, no, yeah, I will, but I haven't changed my mind. I don't see any value finding out whether that is the reality or not because it's happened many years ago and everyone, in, I was about to say, everyone involved is, is dead. I'm not, but you get the point. Um, and so I did, I, at the time, I didn't, and this is, you know, nine years ago, eight or nine years ago now, isn't it? Um, yes, eight and a half. Right. Well, I had to do the calculation to see how close you were to your 60th before asking the question. Oh, well, that's a good 20 years off, mate. Yeah, as you know. It, it was not something that I, w I wanted to write about then. Um, I may write about it soon because, in fact, my mother died about uh, uh, just under two years ago, um, a few months short of two years ago. Um, and now that's something that obviously won't cause her any discomfort if I dig out these issues. So maybe maybe the time has come to write that down. Um, and indeed, uh, if I ever write a book about my world, uh, my worldview and my life and whatever, I don't know, it would be a memoir, more of a series of disconnected rants, but I've already written the first paragraph of that and it's got the John Birmingham uh, seal of approval. Uh, and the first paragraph is, my father was a cunt and when he died, I didn't shed a single tear. I was 10 years old. It's a good first sentence. Good first sentence. That's two sentences. Yeah, but yeah. So I don't know where we go from that, but yeah. Only, only 150,000 words to go. Yeah. You don't have to write books to a certain length these days because the size of books, and indeed the invention of the novel itself, was about what is a convenient size to sit on a store shelf and a certain thing. So we've, we've got these standard sizes for written material based on uh, the size of the packaging in which you put the words to sell them at retail. Uh, you don't have to do that anymore. No. Would you be in a better position to do the, that, to write that now than you were ten years ago? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a question. You're going to say why is that? Is the next question, Nicholas? I wonder. Yeah, I wonder what has changed. Is it is it simple simple distance? Um, 
how long ago is 10 years? What was happening then? I'm healthier than I was 10 years ago. Mm. I think that's the easiest way of saying it. I, I have a clearer view of the world than I did 10 years ago. It's an enviable position to be in. Is it? Yeah, I think I so. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> because I'm seeing the world is, it's not necessarily pleasant, but. No, not necessarily. But I'm on the right drugs this time. Clarity helps uh, with many things. Uh, the, one of the reasons these questions are fascinating to me is because I am now almost exactly as old as you were when you embarked on that project. Uh, my 50th birthday is now uh, 10 or so months away. Yeah. So I'm facing precisely the same sort of set of questions and, the, and looking back over the same span of time now. To that 50 is a me. pretty magic number. It is. It, it's, it hits you that it's half a century. It, it does. And with, with it comes a whole bunch of, uh, of uh, uh, reflections. Uh, one of the things is... Your body stops working. Yeah, well, that's been slowly creaking well, that does, for, the last, yes. for the last 10 years yes. or more. But, uh, but uh, thoughts occur... Thing, it's, it's an opportunity to reflect on what you've learned and, what you've ch- and what's changed in your life. Mm. And one of the things that I, I realised had changed is that uh, I, I now no longer see a century as a terribly long time, where, which is a, a thought that comes up when, when viewing his, things in their historical context. When you're 20 and you think about things which are a century ago... It seems like forever. Mm. Um, when I was 20, things that were a century ago were, you know, the unification of Germany. Yes. Um, the Franco-Prussian War. Uh, now, well, now that I'm 50, I can think back over the course of a century and think, well, you know, I've only got to wait this long again and I'll have seen that length of time, which is, which is fascinating. Although you are younger than the B-52 bomber. Yes, very likely. Sorry, I, I, this is this is one of one of the factoids I like about aviation is that there have been B fifty two bombers flying for longer than the entire period from the Wright brothers until the B fifty two's first flight. Yeah, which which yes yes I mean all right that that is not a fact that is likely to endear you to a future loved one or <laughs> yeah, don't don't try and pick up chicks with that one guys it's not it's not going to work i am making well, actually, no, no, no. I, take, I take that back because there are women i know who who that would be guaranteed to, for, to spark their interest but but presumably they already know that <laughs> <laughs> yes that's the that's the problem with those things yes yeah. like, why are you mansplaining aeroplanes i am now me? going to feign an interest in them in a matter which you hold passionate and dear yeah we'll see how, uh, see how far that gets me oh dear um well here's here's a, here's a um here's another factoid of course is the next year um 2019 will be the 50th anniversary of the landing on the moon by uh, a, a bunch of actors um, on a film set in Arizona. And uh, <laughs> don't ever say that to Buzz Aldrin, by the way. <laughs> Quite a lot I wouldn't say to Buzz Aldrin. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lovely video on YouTube of someone accosting Buzz Aldrin. He's coming out of a building and accusing him of faking the moon landings and Buzz Aldrin just decks him. Still got a good hit. Still yeah, got I, a good, good right cross, Buzz. <laughs> that's, that's right. I met him many years ago. He's a lovely guy. Um, but, yes, it's 50 years since that landing. And and then I think, I watched that on the telly. Yeah. I didn't. I heard it in well, utero. Telling, yes. Yeah. I was about you, a month you, away from being born. Right. Right. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a joke that is an obscenely I'm told sexist I, I'm story. Told I was, I'm told I was there, but the view was somewhat restricted. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, let's not. Uh, I Just on that, I have a school report from many, many, many years ago which says that, uh, yes, I would probably do better at the subject if I concentrated on the, the material being taught rather than my jokes. Um, and those of you may well still agree. <laughs> scroll, scroll back on it. Fatuous and obvious observation. Yeah. Thank you very much, teacher. Are they yeah. paying you for this? Well, I suppose they were. Um, Not enough. <laughs> uh, people are often asked what they would tell their teenage selves, or it's a question oh, that yeah. comes up fairly often, is what you would go back and tell, say, your 14 or 15-year-old self to get them through the thorny years that lie ahead. Okay, this one is really without notice. Is it? Um, you did, was this on your list that you oh, sent I, me? I jotted down a note about it. Um, did you send that note to me? I did. Uh, oh, okay. I thought I'd read all of the questions. No, well, the, 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 the point of the, the question here is that it's a, it, it, in many way, cases, that in many senses, that's an absurd question, not, not least of all because uh, your teenage self 
probably wouldn't listen to a bloody word you said. Um, oh, certainly, yeah. I wouldn't. So, have done no, 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 that, I would, I, no, I wouldn't have done. I was appalling. Yeah, <laughs> well, many of us look back and think such. But uh, I wonder what if you were given the opportunity to go back and tell your forty-year-old self what you would tell Ooh. him. Oh, what lessons here, here we here we can assume is someone who is sufficiently well formed as to actually perhaps give the interlocutor a chance to finish their sentence and actually listen to what is being said. One assumes making some fairly generous assumptions about what you were like when you were 40. Um, you know what I was like when I was 40. <laughs> I've seen some of the photos. Uh, I just, yeah. Yes, yes, you, you, what you should be glad you haven't seen them all. <laughs> yeah, I'm very glad that I haven't seen them all. Um, I, I might then need to suppress some memories. Um, but... Memories, yes. memories are made to be suppressed. <laughs> yeah, that Repressed, for, sorry. That 40 or, or, or perhaps, to once again make this all about myself, that 50-year-old self, what, what would you tell him about the decade that he's about to face? Be braver. There you go. Don't be afraid to discard things from the past or continue doing things that you're just continuing to do because you're doing them, like this podcast i suppose but but more seriously in terms of anything for work uh anything work is what i'm thinking of mostly there that's why i pause what else no 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 um um, yeah don't be afraid to change it's a wonderful thing to think uh, wonderful it it is it is an astonishing thing to to me to think about how much fear plays a part in in so many of our lives certainly it plays an enormous part in mine so many of the decisions that i've made over the course of my life Many of them decisions not to change something have been made for fear of the consequences. And I think that too would be one of the things that I would say to my, my younger self. What are you so afraid of? Snakes. Deep water. They're the two. What was your 40-year-old self afraid of? Uh, that snakes. He, that, he should snakes. Not, that he should not have been. Fear snakes of snakes is and per- deep this water. Is Australia. Fear of a snakes is perfectly rational. That's well, it, it also happened. My mother, Buy bless a her, bless her late soul, uh, when we did grow up on the farm, she, she, she was very worried if we went past that first fence out the back of the house. Be careful, there are snakes! Uh, they probably were. Uh, they were more likely to be stumpy lizards of some sort, but... Yes, no, snakes and I've got all near near water any deeper than my ankles. Don't go near the water, you'll drown. I just heard shouting across the hotel. If anyone <laughs> rushes in the room to investigate why someone is drowning in a conference room. Um, what was I afraid of? What were you afraid of at 40? Oh, failure. Very, very worried about what other people were thinking of my work and what I do. And I'm still there a bit. Is it sort of the usual... Creator slash, I, don't, I was about to say performer, not really. Well, no, I suppose this is a performance. Everything's a performance. Um, what would failure look like? Failure to make a living, you have to go and get a proper job. Yeah, something like that. Uh, but, you know, I'm unemployed. I couldn't do a proper job. No one would want me to do a proper job. And that is, of course, a concern. And it's a concern for all of us as we get older is the thought of, you know... Imposter syndrome. At, well, yeah. uh, you know, at the age of 30, I could have walked out on my, on my, my job then... And mm. gone and started something else. Mm. But nobody wants a 50-year-old ex-accountant walking up and saying, hi, I'd like an entry-level position at something, please. Because there are, there are 30, 20-year-olds standing right behind me with precisely as much experience, and they're better looking. The media, at least for men, or at least people who don't want to be on television, um, is, is relatively forgiving uh, of age, uh, women on television that that doesn't work for them, unfortunately. Uh, and I thoroughly recommend the work Tracy Spicer is doing to uh, to change that perception. She's also slightly crazy. Let me tell you, but <laughs> good to catch up with. Um, I suppose you have to be crazy to work in commercial television for so long, uh, particularly as a woman. You put up with a lot of shit. Um, but yeah, I mean, I can keep doing this sort of media-ish stuff forever until the brain stops working. And even then. (laughs) (laughs) You get a job on Sky News. That's right. (laughs) TGB also caters for the mentally challenged, (laughs) both, both in staffing arrangements and audience. That is completely unfair to people genuinely suffering from a brain injury or some other form of uh, impairment. So sorry, folks.
I've that's a bit over now. Should we wrap it? Yeah, I think it's probably a good idea. I, sorry, I'm running away from the microphone. Yes, I um, I have uh, I have no further questions dotted down that I feel like pursuing right now. Um, I have some questions on the nature of fear, but to how much not only our lives in terms of our choices about professional careers, but we as a national polity, how much of our decisions are driven by fear. And one of the most depressing things that, that observing the national political scene in recent years has been the willingness of some players to magnify and trade on fear as a direct political tool, which I think is enormously corrosive of the of the public trust and and our ability to make rational decisions as a polity. But um, these are perhaps weightier issues and we should be plumbing at this yes, stage. Yes, indeed. Uh, we will we'll come back for the 9pm fear at a later date. <laughs> the 9pm project fear. Yes, um, I, I will say that uh, uh, those of you listening to this as it is being cast through the pod, uh, the next uh, episode's coming up. Um, no, 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 I'll, I'll do that in the voiceover, the theme. Here's the theme. Goodbye, Nicholas. Goodbye, Stigarin. Well, that's all the edict for now. If you'd like to support this and other ventures, head over to stillgarian.com slash tip and empty your wallet. The next episode will be an interview with Mike Godwin of Godwin's Law fame about politics and media and freedom and shit. That's very soon. Until then, I'm still Garyan. Have a good one. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry. Hello, I'm Nick Fryer. Welcome to The Edict. Listen, mate, we've barely <laughs> fucking <off>. begun. <laughs>